0: The rest of you, if you have a copy of God's Word, either electronically or physically, however you have it, you can open or swipe or turn or turn on John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Many of you may have remembered the story back in 2014. There was a man named Frank Barusa from Canada. He made headlines for claiming to be the world's best counterfeiter. He was able to produce a $20 bill that fooled authorities. The Secret Service agents were Astounded at how realistic these $20 bills looked. And he spent two years studying how to make counterfeit money. He went online to the Secret Service website and he studied intensely how to produce fake money. In 2012, the Canadian police seized $1 million worth of $20 bills. He was arrested. Now they thought. It was probably some huge crime syndicate, some organized crime outfit, because it was so intricate. But they traced it back to this one man, Frank Barusa, who was so skilled at making these fake $20 bills. As a matter of fact, he produced $250 million worth of fake money. Now, here's the ironic thing about it. He only served 6 weeks in prison paid a $1500 fine because he handed over the 200 million dollars to the authorities they still don't know where the other 50 million dollars is circulating somewhere out there now frank barusa was a counterfeit artist he was an expert at faking money he fooled everyone around him even the secret servants agents that were trained to see the the differences they actually said that to the naked eye these twenty dollar bills were something something to behold they were so quote unquote realistic looking but they were fake now what comes to your mind when you think about the greatest counterfeit of all time the greatest faker in all of history The one who was the biggest hypocrite that fooled everybody around him. We think of none other than Judas Iscariot. The ultimate betrayer. The ultimate faker. The greatest counterfeit of all time. Judas. Now last week, we began John chapter 13. And Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In that amazing display of servanthood and humility combined with sovereignty, Jesus donned the towel, bends down, and washes the disciples' feet, washed Judas' feet. And Jesus gave it as an example for us to follow and how we would humbly serve others with that same type of, of compassion. And yet Jesus gave a warning as he was washing those disciples' feet. Let's look at verse 10 for a moment. In John chapter 13, this was what we looked at last week, but I want to remind you. In in verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, that's plural, you guys are clean, but not every one of you. (coughs) Excuse me. For he knew who he was that was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. I'm fighting a little bit of a cough this morning, so (coughs) Judas was not clean, he was not saved, he was not, quote unquote, really one of the twelve, even though he was chosen by Christ. So let's continue to read this story of the betrayal by Judas. Let's pick up in verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. (coughs) So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Judas was telling him, buy what we need, buy what we need for the feast or that should something be given to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread he immediately went out and it was night Here's the main thrust of this passage of scripture here's the main point that needs to be driven home It's simply this you cannot hide hypocrisy from the sovereign Christ You cannot hide hypocrisy from the sovereign Christ. In this passage of Scripture, we're going to see the sovereign Christ on full display, and we're going to see hypocrisy on full display. So let's first explore the sovereignty of Christ. You cannot hide hypocrisy from the sovereign Christ. Notice the shift in tone. Notice how verse 18 starts. Jesus abruptly says I'm not speaking to all of you I'm not talking to all of you there's 12 of you here but I'm not talking to all of you I know whom I have chosen I know whom I've chosen Christ has chosen some of these 12 for salvation and for service and there's a type of, uh, of choosing that's not necessarily self for salvation. There's a, a type of choosing where God chooses Judas to be an instrument to carry out the fulfillment of Scripture. So he has 12 disciples in front of him, but one of them is going to be the betrayer so that Scripture would be fulfilled. As a matter of fact, Peter in the book of Acts when they're discussing who's going to replace Judas says in Acts 1:16 Brothers the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus Notice that Peter said it had to be fulfilled scripture had to be fulfilled it was God's scriptural prophetic predestined plan Judas to betray Jesus and that's why Jesus says I'm not talking to all of you I know whom I've chosen and then he quotes Psalm 41 9 Jesus quotes Psalm 41 9 I'm not speaking to all of you I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me that's from Psalm 41 9 even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now this is a psalm of David. And when David was giving this psalm, he was expressing sorrow how a good friend of his, Ahithophel, had betrayed him to go in cahoots with David's son Absalom to try to overturn the government, to try to overcome the kingship. And so David is expressing sorrow over a close friend betraying him. And so Jesus quotes that particular psalm right here to Judas. The one who eats bread with me is going to lift his heel against me. And we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to lift the heel? It's an expression we don't use. What does it mean to lift the heel? Some scholars uh, thought that maybe it meant like a a mule or, or a horse about ready to kick somebody in the face. Judas is going to kick Jesus in the face metaphorically. The bottom of the foot was a sign of derision, a sign of of, of anger. No matter how you slice it, it's symbolic for saying this. Judas is going to betray Jesus. It's going to be a betrayal by somebody close, by a close friend. It's going to be a treacherous act of betrayal. They're going to stab Jesus in the back. Now this brings up an important question, a question I was asking this week. Why did Jesus choose Judas knowing full well that Judas was going to do what he's going to do. Well, let's go back in the story to John chapter 6 for a moment. So turn with me. We looked at this last week, but I think it's important because it sets the stage for what we see in John chapter 13. This is, again, back in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus makes a statement about Judas. So, so go back to John chapter 6 and start in verse 66. John 6:66, 6, and there's nothing ominous about that, okay? So just the way it happens to, to fall. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, "Do you want to go away as well?" And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter says, listen, we believed you. We've come to know you. This is their salvation moment. They're trusting in Christ. But notice what Jesus says in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? I chose you, twelve. I chose you, but yet one of you is a Devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here's a truth the Bible teaches that we may not clearly understand, but the Bible teaches it. Judas is fully responsible for betraying Jesus. Judas acted out of the evil of his own heart. Judas acted upon his own impulses, his own freedom, his own way of doing things. Judas did what he wanted to do in betraying Jesus. Yet at the same time, it was God's sovereign plan for Judas to do that. Now, don't ask me how those two fit together. The Bible teaches both. Judas is absolutely responsible for what he did, but yet he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do as a fulfillment of Scripture. Judas will be held accountable for what he did, Now notice what Jesus does in verse 19. Jesus gives them fair warning. Look at verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you'll believe that I'm he. Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you beforehand I'm going to be betrayed so that when it happens, you're not caught off guard. You're not fooled. You will know that I am, literally in the Greek text there. You will know that I am. What does that sound like? Jesus has said that all throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's Jesus saying, I'm God in the flesh. The same God who showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God who showed up to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this, the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus wants the disciples to know something very important. Listen, guys, I am. I am not some hopeless victim caught off guard by Judas not knowing what's going on. He's not pulling one over on me. I'm not being fooled here. I am absolutely sovereign of this entire situation. I want you to know beforehand so that when it does happen, you realize I'm telling you right now that I am sovereign. I'm doing what I'm going to be doing. Nobody controls me. Judas maybe think that he's controlling the situation. As a matter of fact, I'm controlling Judas. I'm using Judas for my purposes. Nothing happens without my sovereignty. Notice what Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay down my life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus is saying, listen. I am sovereign over this entire situation. Judas may think that he's getting away with it. Judas may think that he's fooling me. I know that scripture has to be fulfilled. I'm telling you beforehand it's going to happen so that you will know that I am sovereign. I'm in control of all this. I'm not a victim. I've not been duped. I've not been fooled. I know exactly what's happening, and it's part of God's timetable. Judas has to do this in order to fulfill the scripture. So that's Jesus' sovereignty. Now let's explore the hypocrisy of Judas. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled. Strong word. He, he, there was turmoil going on in his inner life. He was almost to the point of convulsions and the thought of, of, of a best friend betraying him. He's grieved. He's deeply moved. Now, Jesus is sovereign, so he's not caught off guard, and so the text doesn't tell us why he's tr- so troubled in spirit, but we can imagine Jesus had, had spent three years seeing Judas, a close friend, and knows in just a few moments, just a few hours, he's going to be betrayed. Jesus could be troubled in the fact that Judas is going to have Satan enter him. Jesus is troubled by the fact that he knows that Judas is going to go to hell. We really don't know. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. And in verse 21, Jesus tells the disciples, after he's troubled in spirit, Jesus testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one of you will betray me it's not going to come from outside from the pharisees or the sanhedrin or the leaders yes they're going to be used they're going to be part of it but one of you from the inner circle one of you the 12 my intimate group of friends out of one of you one of you will betray me it's going to come from one of you and they're surprised look at verse 22 The disciples looked at one another uncertain. It's it's an interesting word in the original language. At a loss. Perplexed. Totally confused. This news was confounding to them. What do you mean one of us? Now notice what they don't do. Does it say in the text, Simon, Peter, John, Andrew, and all the the eleven pointed the finger to Judas and said, Ah, it's him. Did anybody ever suspect Judas? Which means what? Judas was the biggest faker of all time. He was the biggest hypocrite the world has ever known. He'd shared life with these men for three years. He ate, slept, drank, taught, did life with these men for three years. Think about how much he had to fake it all the time. Never let his guard down. He'd become a master manipulator of faking it for the past three years because nobody suspected him. Now, you need to think about how they're sitting in that ancient culture. Don't think of Leonardo da Vinci like I said last week with their upright at a big table with these tall chairs. No, they're probably in a U-shaped with a low table and cushions with their left hand on the table so they can eat with their right hand, with their feet fanned out, with Jesus at the head of the table. And there was a position at his right and a position at his left. These were the positions of honor. Now, the text tells us that probably John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is probably at Jesus' right, at the place of honor. And we know Peter's not at the place of honor, because what does Peter do? Peter's over here, and he motions to John, Tell him, ask him. That's what the text tells us, doesn't it? What does it say? Not quite like that, but what does it say? Verse 22. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Probably his right side. So Simon Peter motioned to him. We don't know how Peter did it. Did he use sign language? Did he motion? Did he whisper? Ask him. Who was he speaking about? So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said, "Lord, Lord, who is it? Now here's the thing that most scholars believe. Most scholars believe Judas was on his left-hand side, the other place of honor. Because Jesus could very easily give him the, 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 the bread dipped in the sauce and not have to pass it around the table. And so as Judas is there in a position of honor at the left side of Jesus, Jesus gives the answer as to who the betrayer is going to be. What does he say? Verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when it has been dipped. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, this is the Passover meal. And we've celebrated a Passover Seder here from time to time. It's when you dip the bitter herbs and you dip the, the, the there's like a little sauce of, of apples and dates or whatever. And so it was when you would dip the bread in this little sauce and then share it with Judas. And evidently, Jesus wasn't going to share this with everybody, he was just going to share it with Judas. Now, you have to understand something here. What we think to ourselves, okay, so he dips a piece of bread in a little bit of sauce. Okay, so we got a pita bread and applesauce. What's the big deal? What does it mean to dip your bread in the sauce and hand it to somebody? Well, what's the significance of that? There's huge significance to that. In that culture, when you dipped the bread and you gave it, it was a symbol to the person you were giving it to saying this, you are my closest friend, I love you, I trust you, and I am so loyal to you. What's he doing to Judas? He's giving him the symbol of friendship and loyalty and intimacy. He's saying to Judas, Judas, here's the symbol friendship, loyalty, intimacy. I'm giving this to you. And here's what Judas does. What does the text tell us Judas does? He had taken the morsel. He took it. That's the shocking part of this entire story is that Judas took the bread. Because in those moments, what should have Judas done? He should have said, Oh my goodness. This is my Lord and Savior. This is my friend. I'm about to betray him. I do not deserve this token of friendship. I get on my knees and I repent before you, Jesus. I am so sorry. I'm not going to betray you. I repent. I repent. But what does Judas do? Coldly, calculatingly, looking Jesus in the face the whole time, accepts that symbol of friendship and loyalty. And just coldly and calculatingly eats it. John Calvin said this about Judas. His heart, which was harder than iron... Ought to have been softened by so great kindness showed to him by Christ. Christ was showing Judas a kindness. Judas, I'm extending to you friendship, loyalty, and an opportunity for you to repent. But Judas's heart had gotten so hard that instead of accepting that and repenting and falling on his face before the Lord, he takes the morsel. And then here's the ominous thing that happens. Notice immediately what happens. Verse 27. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. This is not said of anybody else in the Bible. Now, evil spirits came upon people. People were demon-possessed. People may have even been influenced by Satan, but there's nobody in all of Scripture that it was ever said that Satan entered into them. Satan himself enters into Judas because this is the biggest event in all of history. Satan's not going to abdicate this to a demon. He's going to deal with the high stuff. Probably you and me, he's going to send demons to afflict us, but not with Judas. He's going to enter Judas directly. That's why Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26 24, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Now, notice what Jesus does in verse 27 at the end of it. You may say, Well, what's going on at the end of verse 27? After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, we just can brush over that and say, Okay. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is commanding Satan to do his work. Which means Jesus is still sovereign over Satan even in these moments. What you're going to do through Judas, do it quickly. Here's why. It was God's ordained timetable that at Passover, the Passover lambs would be, cru- would be um, slaughtered. Jesus had to be slaughtered as the Passover lamb at just the right time and so even in the moments where Satan looks like he's the one that's in charge Jesus is still telling Satan what to do what you're going to do do it quickly he's commanding Judas which means that Satan can't do anything without God's permission think about Job could Satan do anything to Job without God giving him permission no it's another thing we need to understand about the Bible is that Satan can't do anything without even God's permission to do it. So even in this entire spiritual warfare scene of satanic attack and, and invasion in Judas, Jesus is still sovereign, commanding him what to do. He's actually controlling it. Now, nobody suspected it. Because Judas leaves, Right? And what do they think? They're thinking to themselves, okay, maybe he, he's the money bag guy. He's the treasure. Maybe he went to go buy some, some supplies because there's a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. There's a seven-day festival. Or, or maybe he went to go give money to the poor, which was common at that time. Nobody suspected Judas when he got up and left. I mean, think about it. He got up and left the, the, the dinner. Nobody thought twice about it. Then you've got verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Immediate. He doesn't think twice. There's no second guessing. There's no second thought. Satan has entered him. The wheels are in motion. He leaves immediately. And then notice what John says. It was night. Well, that's great, John. Thank you for letting us know chronologically when this happened. It was night. Is is John giving us details about just the chronology? Or is he telling us something about the symbolism going on here? Yes, it's night, but what's John doing? That it's dark. Judas is steeping and sinking into darkness. How's hell described? A place of outer darkness. Judas has entered hell itself, or you could say it this way hell itself has entered Judas. And it was dark, it was night. Now, that's the narrative. That's the story. Never to be repeated. Part of redemptive history where Judas was used by God prophetically to do this. But the question we've got to ask is what are the applications? What are the implications? How does this relate to us? And I've been praying all week about this because it's sobering. It's scary. So let me just suggest to you three things, three issues for you to think deeply about this morning in light of this passage of Scripture. And I think these are very, very important. Here's the first. Close proximity to Jesus does not mean that you've truly been saved by Jesus. Now, what do I mean by close proximity to Jesus means that you may not be truly saved by Jesus? Close proximity to Jesus means this. You can come to church you can sit in a worship service like this. You can read your Bible. You could have been baptized. You can go through all the external motions that show that you understand church life and have close proximity to Jesus in the church and not be saved by Jesus in your heart. Judas spent three years in close proximity to Jesus, did he Not? He ate with Jesus. He slept with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus teach. He saw Jesus preach. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He was sent out two by two to do the same thing. He got to see Jesus up close and personal for three years. But Judas never once repented and had true salvation. He was in close proximity to Jesus. Now let me give a strong warning to some of you here today that have grown up with gospel privileges. What do I mean by gospel privileges? I mean this, and this scares me as your pastor. Gospel privileges are this. There may be some children and youth that have grown up with godly parents that have taken you to church every time the doors were open. And you have come to this place since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. You may have even been dedicated on this stage. And you've gone to children's church, and you've gone to Cubbies, and you've gone to Team Kid, and you've gone to Club 45, and you've gone to youth group, and you can, res- you can spout off the verses to us. You can, you can quote John 3.16. You can go through all of the motions of what it means to have a relationship with Christ, but you yourself have never been saved. That scares me half to death. Because you have gospel privileges that other people do not have. Think about the the, the, the the villages in India when we go on these mission trips. They are steeped in Hinduism. They are steeped in paganism. They've never had a Bible. They've never had Sunday school. They've never had a church service. They are in pagan idolatry, but you come week in and week out, and you hear the gospel preached. You're in Sunday school. You're in, you've probably got four or five Bibles in your room. You have close proximity to Jesus, and you know enough to send you to hell in your head, but you'd never, never been saved in your heart by Christ that was Judas close proximity to Jesus does not mean salvation by Jesus just because you come to church just because you go through the motions just because you know stuff doesn't mean that you're truly saved here's the second thing we need to think about Does the description of Judas sober you at the reality of false conversions? Judas was a false convert. He wasn't a true Christian. Now, he preached the gospel. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He faked it very, very convincingly to everybody around him. But he was never saved. J.C. Ryle has said this about Judas. Privileges alone without grace save nobody and will only make hell deeper. Judas shows us the uselessness of mere head knowledge. To know things with our brains and be able to talk and preach and speak to others is no proof that we are on the path of salvation. There's such a thing as false converts. People who may think they're saved, but they're not really saved. They look like they're saved, but they're not really saved. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 13, 20-21. through 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There are those that receive the word and they're joyful and it looks like they're saved and it looks like they're excited, but there's no roots. And when the pressures of life come, and the temptations and the peer pressure and all the stuff comes and presses against you, because there's no true salvation, you bail. You prove that you were never saved in the first place. You walk away. So there is such a thing as false conversion. People who go through the motions, go through the motions, go to church, get baptized, say a prayer, raise a hand, walk forward at the altar, whatever you call it, they go through the motions to act like they are saved, but they never have truly been genuinely converted. So there is such a thing as false converts. Judas was a perfect example of a false convert, but not only a false convert, he's a perfect example of a false teacher. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 15-20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. False teachers do not show up with a big name badge saying, Hello, I'm a false teacher. They show up as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Paul warned about this even. Here's the scary thing. Paul gathered the Ephesian elders together, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And Paul says, listen, after I leave, even among you as the elders, there's going to arise false teachers. Among the elders. Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's false teaching all around. I've got to address something. I addressed this eight years ago, but I've got to address it today because the movie comes out just this week. The Shack movie comes out. Now, I have an eight-page issue paper out there that I wrote eight years ago you probably have it from eight years ago but if not you can get it the theology in the shack is heretical it is dangerous I'm not sure what the movie's going to be and I'm not going to fault you if you go see the movie I'm just saying that you need to be aware that there is not a lot of Christian doctrine in the shack I believe it's false teaching and if you go see the movie use a lot a lot of discernment there may be like 5% good and 95% bad, but if, if, if that's poison, do you want that? There's false teaching all around. If you want to know more about it out there on the Welcome Center table, I've got an eight-page paper that gives six issues I have with it, with quotes from the book. Okay, Judas was in close proximity to Jesus, but wasn't saved. Jesus, Judas was a false convert who wasn't saved. You could also say he was a false teacher. I mean, he didn't probably teach false doctrine, but he actually taught. taught. As as a person in leadership, as one of the twelve that wasn't saved, here's the third one. And I think this is the most important. You may be able to fool others, but you cannot fool God. Judas fooled others, did he not? Nobody suspected Judas. He was a master at hypocrisy. He hit it well. Proverbs ten verse nine says this: Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But whoever makes his way crooked will be found out. It will be found out. It may not be the people around you, but it will be found out. And God knows. You cannot fool God. With Judas, was Jesus clueless about what was going on? Did Judas pull one over on him? Jesus knew exactly what was going on. There was no fooling Jesus. He actually told the disciples, I'm not talking to all of you. It's going to happen. It's part of Scripture. He knew he was a false convert. He knew everything about him. He, didn't, he wasn't fooled. Judas fooled everybody else, but he didn't fool Jesus. Now listen to this, these words from Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, Lord. You see the the intimacy with that terminology? I'm calling you Lord. Not just God generic, but you're my Lord, Lord, Lord. I'm sure Judas called Jesus Lord, Lord on many occasions. I'm sure Judas prophesied in Jesus' name and taught the Bible on many occasions. I'm sure Judas cast out demons in Jesus' name on many occasions. And I'm sure Judas did many mighty works in Jesus' name. Judas had the resume, did he not? He was one of the twelve. He was a close friend of Jesus. He was the treasurer. Nobody suspected him at all. He was (laughs) the clean-cut guy that nobody would have looked at. Peter, on the other hand, he looked at part, didn't he? Always putting his foot in his mouth, always talking at the wrong time. Who's going to betray you? Who's going to betray you, Jesus? Well, everybody's probably thinking, it's got to be Peter. (laughs) Nobody thought it was Judas. Nobody thought it was Judas. But what does Jesus say? I never knew you. Judas went to hell as a worker of lawlessness. Judas never repented and believed in Jesus and fooled every single person around him. And Jesus tells this, never did I know you, Depart from me, he tells that, as a way to warn, shock people that try to hide their hypocrisy. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Can't hide from God. You cannot hide hypocrisy from the sovereign Christ. Which means that this causes us to examine ourselves, does it not? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. The Scripture is very clear this morning. Examine yourselves. Now, I want to leave you with the hope of the gospel, but I don't want to leave it too... I, I don't, I, I want to be careful how I do this. There is a sobering reminder in Judas that all of us should come out of this place uneasy to see somebody that close to Jesus betraying him. Fooling. And I want you to think about that. I want you to examine yourselves. I want you to to really think about, am I a Judas? Am Am I fooling everybody else around me? But on the inside, I know that I'm not a believer. Because here's the hope. If you repent of your sin and turn from your sin, and if you believe wholeheartedly in Jesus, you will find him to be a perfect Savior. He will save you. You don't have to be a hypocrite anymore. You don't have to be a faker anymore. You don't have to be a counterfeiter anymore. You can own up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've been faking it for far too long. You already know it, but I'm owning up to it. I repent of that, and I confess that, and I'm going to the very first time trust you with my life. And if you do that, you will find Jesus' arms open wide, ready to forgive you, even of that hypocrisy that you've had against him. So there is hope in the gospel that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved before it's too late? Judas did not call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. He fooled everybody around him, but he did not fool the sovereign Christ. And you can fool everybody around you and still not fool the sovereign Christ. So you might as well come open because he knows it anyway. Would you confess it to him this morning? Would you repent and believe? Would you examine yourselves? Would this be a sobering warning? that you cannot hide hypocrisy from the sovereign Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you just spend some time in prayer, alone before the Lord, asking Him to search your heart. Oh, Father, we come to a message like this. And there is fear... And my heart at times as pastor because I don't know the hearts of everybody in the flock. I'm thankful, Lord, that's not my job. I can preach, I can love, I can shepherd, I can warn, but ultimately I I can't do anything beyond that. Only you can look in somebody's heart and know if they're a faker or not. (coughs) And Lord, you've given us breath and you've given us a warning and you've given us a message this morning. And so we're accountable for that message. We can't leave this place saying, I didn't know, I didn't hear. So my prayer is that nobody would leave this place with a hard heart. Nobody would leave this place with a coldness. But Lord, there would be a desperation among us us to truly cling to you for salvation Lord I do pray specifically for our youth and children that have grown up in this church with gospel privileges they've probably seen every VeggieTale episode and have the children's Bibles in their rooms and pray at the dinner table and go to Sunday school and team kid and youth group and have all the gospel privileges of, of being in close proximity to you. But there may be some that aren't saved in their hearts by grace. Father, would you save our youth and our children in this church? Would they come to have salvation in you? Would you soften hearts this morning? Would we examine ourselves this morning? Would we see the glory of the sovereign Christ that we can't hide anything from you, Jesus? But the beauty of the gospel is even though you see it and you know it, when we confess and repent, your arms are open wide to receive us and to forgive us and to cleanse us and to save us. So will we all run to your arms this morning, Jesus. Will we find in you, a perfect Savior, a perfect Lord. a sovereign who's mighty to save. We need you, Jesus. We desire you and we love you. Would you please work on our hearts, even as we leave this place? Don't let our hearts be settled. Our hearts are going to always be restless until they find their rest in you. May our hearts find rest in you today, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.